part of you being the best wife, part of you being the best mother is also being a good friend because our friendships, our social support networks are a resource that helps us show up so much better in all of the other relationships we're looking to succeed at in our lives. I'm Amy. And I'm Abby. And as women, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. But your life isn't supposed to look like hers. Being your best self means standing firm in your decisions and always being willing to grow with a purpose. We get vulnerable and real with an honest look into the challenges and triumphs we all face. Every woman listening gets the opportunity to choose what life looks like for herself. One subject that comes up over and over again with our community is friendship. So we're excited that today we're bringing Dr. Marissa Franco, a psychologist and friendship expert, back on the podcast today. Dr. Marissa was back on episode 59, so definitely go back and listen to that one if you have not already. Marissa, we'd love if you reminded our audience why you became interested in studying friendships and also why you feel like this subject is so important. Yes. First, thank you so much for having me, Abby and Amy. I love talking about friendship anywhere I can. And that's really because I have really regretted how I've treated friendship. To be honest, in my younger years, I thought romantic love was the only form of love that matters. And I would go through breakups and feel so unlovable until I started a wellness group with my friends. And we met up and we did yoga and we meditated and we cooked. And I was like, why doesn't this form of love matter? Why have I assumed that I'm unlovable when I have so much love around me? And I just realized that there was a larger cultural issue about how we make friendship into this sort of third-class relationship that we really deprioritize. And I just wanted to be a part of changing that. Mm, I love that answer. And I can't wait to get into more questions about friendship today. But like you mentioned, one thing that puts us at risk for losing friendships is a romantic relationship. And then that can happen again when we have the life transition of having children. I've heard you speak about it before. It's not that there is this big falling out necessarily, but there isn't always time to nurture all of these relationships. So I want to know from you, how do you keep friendships healthy when you are in a busy season? (laughs) Yeah, this is a great question because we know from the research that when you get a romantic relationship, you tend to lose a couple friends. When you have kids, you tend to lose a couple more. And so it is really hard. I think we are distracted for resources. And one of the most common reasons friendships end, again, is it because we've had some big blowout, but it's because we've just fallen out of touch. And so some of my advice when it comes to keeping in touch with friends when busy is one, figure out how you can include friends in meeting the goals that you have anyway, right? Like if you need to exercise, can you ask friends to go on a walk with you? If you are working from home alone, and you want to have coworkers, ask your friends to be your coworkers. There's these goals that we have to do on the day-to-day, and we can just choose to do them in our communities, and that it makes our goals more sustainable, and it makes our communities more sustainable. So it's a win-win. The other thing that I suggest is that I think in these busy periods, we can sort of just expect our friendships to ebb and flow. And I think the problem is when the ebb happens, we assume it's over. And we never check in again, right? But I think, you know, especially with the research on long distance friends, researchers have really said, 
hey, it's flexible, not fragile. And so thinking of our friendships as this may be a sleepy period of the larger book of this friendship so that you can make sure that when you do have that time, when you do have that availability, you can reenter the friendship. And the third thing that I suggest, because I think we often have this assumption that to keep our friendships alive, we have to constantly be checking in and maintaining them. But honestly, the longer your friendship has the longer you've experienced a friendship, the more likely it is to continue. So you have to do less and less if it's a friendship that you've already had. And there are certain acts we can do that they don't take a lot of time, but they have a great impact on continuing the relationship. And so that's things like actually being vulnerable with your friends, telling them what's really going on. That vulnerability really cements connection, showing affection, telling your friends how much you love them, complimenting them. And the third is giving them support in times of need. That's something that people do not forget. And support can really be a a portal to deep intimacy in a friendship. If we can recognize, oh, my friend is in need of support. If I show up at this time, it's going to have a disproportionate meaning for the continuity of our friendship. So let me make sure that I get this timing right, because then overall, the friendship will be more likely to continue. There's already so much value just in your first answer there that our listeners will be able to pick up on. And I love what you said about relationships and friendships being flexible and not fragile, because sometimes we do think that if we just drop it, it's going to break. But having that more flexible mindset with it can help when you're in those friendships and when you're not seeing each other all the time. And we all have that friend, or most of us, I should say, have that friend from high school or grade school that when you get together, you can just pick up exactly where life left off. And this summer, I was able to do that with a few of my high school friends. And it just was so nice to be able to connect again, even if we aren't keeping the friendship alive with text messages every single day. And as Amy and I have talked about before, sometimes friendships, they can feel easier to maintain when the other person is in a similar life stage or having the same type of circumstances that you are. In our community, it's made up of a lot of women and they're in their 30s, which means there's a lot of big changes that are happening right now. So do you have any recommendations for how we can stay connected to a friend that might be in a different season than we are in? So for example, I know sometimes it can be hard if one friend has children and the other friend doesn't understand all the ins and outs of how that impacts her schedule or her time. So Dr. Franco, like overall, how do we navigate two different seasons of life when it comes to friendships? Yeah, this is a great question. Honestly, one that I'm facing, I'm 31 and, you know, friends are getting married more and having kids more. And it is a big question of how do we navigate these differences in our life experiences? For me, I think part of it is remembering about the flexibility, not fragile. So that's giving a lot of my friends grace as they move into these different life stages and assuming, hey, we're still friends. Like this will pick up. I know you're really strapped for time and I'm not going to take this personally. I'm not going to sort of use it against you. But I think the other thing we need to remember, right, is that each of our friends are capsules to a certain type of identity that we have, right? Like, according to the research, when we're around different people, different parts of ourselves pop up. And I think the confusing thing as we make these life transitions is that life transitions are us developing all these new selves that our friend may not have known. And that way it can feel like, oh my gosh, do we really know each other anymore? Like, who is this person now? Who is this person as they've transitioned into married life with kids or they're doing all this caretaking? And so I think it's helpful to just have a reminder that the selves that formed our initial connection are still there. They're always within us. Like these selves never go away and that we can also bring them out. And I think it requires us to sort of walk this line between 
sharing the new selves that we are, but also taking time to focus on the selves that we were. So doing things like reminiscing with a friend that's in a new life stage can sort of remind you, okay, there's the self that we were that really helped us connect. Doing some of the old activities that you always engage in, that can help maintain those feelings of connection because they prime the selves that we were when we had that initial connection. But additionally, you know, I think friendships are deepened when fundamentally people know all the sides of us. The more people know all the sides of us, the deeper our friendship is. So as we revisit those old selves, we also want to make time to bring our friend into the new self and tell them about this is what it's like to be a mom. This is what I've been struggling with. I think a lot of the times too, we have this problem with this sort of false assumption that the kindest thing is almost for me to not include you on these things because you're going to be so bored or for me to not invite you when my kid's around because you know, you're just not going to have fun. And then the friend might just receive that as I'm being excluded. I didn't have the agency to actually choose whether I want to be included or not. And so it's helpful to, again, instead of making those assumptions about whether someone wants to be included or not, or whether they'll see this as a drag, if, you know, my relationship partner is here or my kids are here to actually ask this friend, like, Hey, I know this might not be your thing, but I just wanted to make sure you felt included. So I wanted to invite you to this thing, but if not, that's totally okay. I think that's a really great point. I was just talking to a friend this weekend and one of her best friends doesn't have kids. She has kids. I think they're both wrongly assuming that the other one doesn't want to be included. But I think the real problem is they've never brought that conversation to light and talked about it. So there's two people that might be somewhat hurt, but they've never like connected the dots and had that conversation. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the struggle we get into with friendship in general is that compared to romantic partners, we don't make the unspoken spoken. We just let the unspoken slowly deteriorate our friendship over time, right? Like when there's conflict, when there's different assumptions taking place, we just sort of, I don't know, let it be, hope we get over it. And a lot of the times we don't get over it. And those resentments just continue to simmer like, hey, you weren't showing up for me at this time. And so I just encourage people to have open conflict, to have open conversations, because we think it's a sign of, I don't know, damaging the relationship or ending the relationship, but it's often a sign that people are invested enough to want to continue to invest in it because they're willing to enlighten us with whatever issue is going on in the friendship. That is such a good reminder that conflict can be a good thing. It can bring people closer together. And we get that question often from our audience of how do you even navigate conflict when it comes to friends? And we know that you recommend working through conflict within friendships instead of avoiding it. That was a perfect way of saying it. And also using something called framing in these situations. So what advice would you have for the woman who is experiencing a conflict with a friend, but then still wants to maintain that friendship? Yeah. So first of all, I identify with you and it's normal to feel really scared Mm -hmm. and research finds that we're way more likely to talk through conflict with romantic partners than with friends. And our script about friendship is something that I'm so interested in expanding because I think we see it in such limited ways, but friendship too can be a relationship where we have this deep intimacy of being able to work through problems. And I really realized this when I came across this study because I was very anti-conflict. Like, I just have to get over it. But I came across this study and it, it basically found that having open empathic conflict contributes to more intimacy in all of your relationships. And I was like, maybe I'm wrong that I'm saving this relationship by trying to pretend to be okay with these problems. Like, maybe I'm actually sabotaging it because I'm seeing how I'm withdrawing now and I'm resentful and that can't be good for the friendship. And so it took me actually reading that study to start addressing problems with friendship. And I think a key finding in that study was 
it wasn't about bringing up the conflict. It was about how you brought it up. And if you could bring it up in a certain way, it can really contribute to deepening the intimacy of the friendship. And so for me, I think my misconception about friendship that I think a lot of people have about conflict in friendship was that if I brought it up, it had to be a fight, combative. You know, you did this. I'm not happy with you. You're a bad friend. Now I understand that's not what it has to look like at all. And so, you know, one of the tips that I, I mentioned around having conflict is called framing, which, which actually comes out of the literature on narcissists and how to talk to narcissists so you don't trigger their ego and their defense mechanisms. So framing is basically you enter the conversation with a line that is inviting and welcoming and takes the other person out of fight or flight mode into reconciliation mode. So something like, hey, our friendship is really important to me. So I want to make sure that we just talk through anything that comes up between us so that we can make sure that we stay close, which is why I wanted to mention X, Y, Z. And then I think throughout the conflict, you want to engage in something called mutuality, which means I'm thinking about my needs and yours at the same time. And I'm trying to think about creative ways to meet both of our needs. And so I might share, hey, I, you know, I feel hurt that you're not contacting me every day like we used to, right? And my friend might say, you know, I don't have the capacity anymore. Maybe, I, you know, I have this newborn kid. It's very hard for me to do that. And if I'm engaged in mutuality, I'm aware I might not get this need fully met because I want to consider where my friends at and what their needs are. And so I might negotiate a little bit and be like, okay, so I want to talk every day. You want to talk once a week. What about twice a week? Like, is that something that could work for both of us? I'm interested in sharing my perception, which is again, using I feel statements, not attacking my friend, not saying you are this way, something's wrong with you, but I feel hurt about this. And then I'm interested in hearing from my friend, like what's your take on this or what's been coming up for you? And then negotiating a solution that's mutually beneficial. That was good. Something that's coming to my mind is just hearing from our listeners. I know one thing about them is that sometimes they feel like they don't have the energy to take on conflict. Like it's safer for them to just not expend their energy. And I think also what happens with friends, you've got all the studies. I don't, I've just got the observations, but what can happen with friends, I know I've done this in the past, is I kind of predict how she's going to react to the conversation. Because with friendships, I'm hearing her tell me a lot about other relationships. And so I'm kind of hearing how she can respond to conflict. And I'm deciding on my end, I don't think that this conversation is going to go well. And I don't think that it is going to go far based on all of this evidence that I have. Can you coach me out of that mindset and what you would say? First, you know, empathy. I think it does take a lot of energy. I know all the research. I still get scared. It can still take me, I think, a couple of months, honestly, to address a big issue within a friendship. And for me, and what I suggest for other people too, is making sure you're taking care of yourself in other ways, right? Like, are you exercising? Are you sleeping? Are you balanced? Do you have access to healthy community outside of this friendship that has problems? Because all of those things are going to make you feel safe enough to address this conflict. Because I think fundamentally a question that you want to ask yourself, especially if it's someone who's more difficult with conflict is if this goes wrong, will I be able to tolerate it? Do I have the capacity to tolerate it? And if the answer is no, then you might want to wait a little bit until you do have that capacity. And the second question that I like to ask people, and this comes from a researcher, Jeff Simpson, he tried to get people to work through conflict with friends instead of avoiding it like we tend to. And he said to ask yourself, 
what does this friendship give me that no other relationship does, right? Maybe there's a history there. Maybe there's a shared language. Maybe there's experiences that I could have a side of myself that only comes out of my friend. And that's when we realize just how much we have to lose. And it can be so easy to have the fear of conflict eclipse all of the things we have to lose when we don't engage in the conflict. The third thing that I want to say is yes, and I think to what you're suggesting. (laughs) Some friends aren't great at conflict, right? And some friends are a lot harder to have conflict with than others. Some people have those skills and some people don't. And so, you know, your evidence could be coming from a real place. But the other thing I want to couch that in is that what I see in friendship across the board is something called a negative forecasting error, which basically means Mm. we assume the outcome will be worse than it actually tends to be across the board, right? We assume this when it comes to initiating new friends. We think people are more likely to reject us than they actually are. We assume this when it comes to vulnerability. We think people are going to judge our vulnerability more than they actually do. And this is true with conflict too. We tend to assume that it's going to go a lot worse than it actually does. There's a researcher who studies anger and he says 80% of the time sharing our anger actually goes better than we think and it ends in these positive benefits. So I will say, even though you know, there might be truth that this friend is hard to have conflict with. The other thing is, and make sure you're also correcting for our natural negative forecasting error. Oh, that's really interesting that we have that negative forecasting error. And that does make sense. My therapist tells me I shouldn't predict how people are going to react. Rather, you have to let them, you know, have their side. And I can't always predict how someone's going to react. So that's a really good reminder for that. And now a word from our podcast sponsor, BetterHelp. Friendships in parenthood are hard, period. They can be hard to start. They can be hard to keep going. And after the weight of the day between parenting and work and housework and being a partner, friendships can be the thing that takes the back burner. But we know from experts that friendship is so important. And if you're having a hard time with this concept or even ways to start friendships, speaking to a therapist can be a huge catalyst in gaining the friendships that you not only want, but the friendships that you deserve, the things that will help you feel more like you, the things that will help you have more energy, the things that will help you get back to the hobbies and the things that you love. So we know in these busy seasons, putting ourselves to the side is something that many of us do, but taking your mental health seriously Amy and I both believe this needs to be a top priority. So if you go to betterhelp.com slash herself, you do get 10% off your first month. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash herself to get the mental health therapy that you deserve. Now back to our show. Unfortunately, there are times when friendships no longer serve us. And this can be for a multitude of reasons. And there are real reasons that friendships sometimes need to end. So I would love it if you shared a few strategies with us for if you feel like a friendship needs to end, how we can approach that. Yes. So my big answer is it depends. First, it depends how close the friendship is. I think if it's a less close friendship, you can get away with just doing the back away and seeing if they get the hint. You know, especially if you have a shared network, sometimes it can feel very dicey to like have that direct conversation and then have to continue to interact with people. So I think sometimes we can get away with being sort of indirect in our approach to ending the friendship. The times when we can are when it's a close friend that we've had over time, right? 
and you are sort of feeling that this isn't what I want anymore. Maybe it was at one point in my life. And in that case, if it's a close friend and they still want to be friends and you don't, you have to address it. And the reason is, you know, we've all maybe been experienced being ghosted before. So when you ghost on your friends, when you back away quietly, when you just stop responding to them, you trigger something called ambiguous loss, which means your friend is going to grieve exponentially harder because they don't have the meaning making that helps them cope with the grief. When they have a reason, they have the certainty that allows them to move forward. They have the story that allows them to get closure. And so if you're backing away because you don't want to have an uncomfortable conversation. Just know you're moving the pain of that uncomfortable conversation onto them. The pain isn't going to disappear. It's just you're asking them to do all the discomfort for you. And so that's why I think it's fair to actually bring it up and say, you know, I've been having some thoughts about our friendship. I was wondering if we could schedule time to chat about it. You want to do something called, you know, first using the I statements, sharing your side and your perspective. You know, I feel like this isn't working for me because we're no longer compatible in these ways. I wanted to make sure that I was being transparent with you not putting all the blame on that, or, or I feel like you might need more support in your life than I can give you, you know? And so just making it your process and your experience. The other thing is, I think we sometimes think these ending conversations have to be all bad, but I love the idea of doing something called creating a commemorative friendship, which is you acknowledge the ways that this friendship did benefit you. Like, you know, I do appreciate that you were there for me at this time. I do appreciate all these memories we have together. And that will remain special to me, even though I don't think this friendship is working for me now. And so it's really being able to have that tough conversation. And for people that are on the receiving end, I wanted to share that I hear from so many people that friendship breakups are the hardest breakups they've ever went through. And I wanted to give you some language around that. When we break up with friends because of the ways we devalue friendship and see it as not a legitimate form of connection, when we grieve, other people delegitimize our grief. They might say, it's just a friend. Why are you having such a reaction? Or we may have internalized that idea and we may invalidate our own feelings. Like, why am I having such a reaction? It's just a friend. All of these are antithetical to grieving well. When we're grieving well, we're letting ourselves have our feelings. Other people are validating our feelings. And that's why friendship endings can trigger something called disenfranchised grief, which is the sort of a complicated, messy grief process that we have when we're grieving something that other people don't acknowledge or recognize as a legitimate thing to grieve about. Mm, it can feel so messy. And when it's your friend and your friendship, the grief can feel so real. So you just validated that for so many of our listeners who are in that right now, or who have been in that in the past. And we're just wondering, like, what is going on right now in my mind? Like, why am I having such a hard time with this? It's hard because it is hard. And I might not remember every single one of the labels that you put to it, but you gave us the language behind it and the descriptions behind it, how it will look different depending on that friendship. We can't treat all friendships the same. And I'm just so glad that you're able to bring that part up because I'm just looking through my relationships. And I know that there is definitely some conversations that could have been had that would have made for a much better today. So, so far, we have talked a lot about established friendships. And we know our community also wants to hear your expertise on when it comes to making new friends. And I know that you have talked about the concept of the liking gap and also the beautiful mess effect when it comes to just having these assumptions about potential new friends. So Dr. Marissa, could you explain these ideas to our listeners and also tell us how we can use them to shift our mindset with making new friends? Absolutely. So if you're like the average person or me before I studied this intensively, you're like, I would like to make new friends. 
dot, 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 (laughs) but I don't want to do anything. It's scary. I'm afraid of rejection. I just hope people kind of fall into my life and I can, you know, put this out into the universe and people will start initiating with me. And this is what I want to impart. That's just not how it works. Don't assume friendship happens organically. In fact, that assumption, the assumption that friendship happens based on luck is related to being lonelier years later. And so fundamentally, when it comes to friendship, you have to initiate, you have to put yourself out there. When I say this to people, they're like, that's really scary. I don't want to be rejected. And I want to remind you of our negative forecasting error. And so the liking gap is basically when researchers put strangers together and ask each of them, how much do you like the other person? People across the board had this tendency to underestimate how liked they were by the stranger. And the more self-critical they were, the more pronounced this liking gap was, the more they underestimated how liked they were. So we all have this bias to underestimate how much people like us. And the problem with this bias is that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because people that tend to project rejection, it's called rejection sensitivity, people that see rejection everywhere, whether or not it's actually true. What they do is that they tend to respond from their perceived rejection by being cold or being withdrawn. And then people are like, well, I don't want to interact with this person who's cold or withdrawn. And so they end up actually becoming rejected. And so, you know, this is a surprising finding I get from the research. Who's most likely to reject you? It's the people that fear rejection the most because they think you're rejecting them and they're turning into these defense mechanisms of closeness. And so the other piece of that, when researchers manipulated people to go into a group and to think that the people in the group would accept them, even though this wasn't true, they found that those people that thought they would be accepted were open, were friendlier, were more agreeable, and they actually ended up being more accepted. It's called the acceptance prophecy in the research. So that is one of my biggest tips when it comes to making friends. Assume people like you, because when you make that assumption, you're going to be open, you're going to be friendlier, you're going to actually initiate with people and say, you know, hey, my name's Marissa, nice to meet you, what brings you here, you know, and then you're actually going to have the mindset to overcome those fears of rejection, which are one of the biggest barriers, one of the biggest obstacles that we all face to making friends. A break from our sponsor, Viore. By now, you guys know how much Abby and I both love Viore. And you're going to see me in their tops all fall and winter long. So if you're starting to shop for fall, I have some of my very favorites that I want you to check out. The Halo Performance Hoodie 2.0 is just the most comfortable top that you could ask for. It's such an easy thing to throw on if you need to just get a little bit warmer. I also love the Halo Essential Hoodie. Same thing. Their fabric is second to none. It's the most comfortable thing that you will put on. The one that I really have my eye on is the Sunny Side Hoodie. I think I need to add that to my Viore collection since nothing has ever disappointed me. So if you guys want to join us, you can go to vioreclothing.com. That's V-U-O-R-I clothing dot com backslash herself for 20% off. This is a great discount for amazing clothes. And now back to our show. Herself listeners, 
go back and listen to that whole statement again. If you are in that position where you're being nervous about making new friends, because you just stated all the things that went through my mind and go through my mind and go through others' minds when they are getting nervous about making new friends. And you had mentioned that just assume people like you, like right away from the start, assume people like you. Do you have like maybe two or three more tips that people can use today if they're interested in making new friends? Absolutely. So my first tip, let's say you have no friends, right? The first friend is always the hardest. Here's what I suggest you do. First tip, think of an interest you have. Look up a way that you could pursue that interest in community. Hiking, hiking group. I love learning languages, language class, right? I love improvising, improv class, you know? Mommy and me class, PTA at my kid's school, whatever this looks like for you, whatever you're interested in, look up a way that you can do that in community. You want to sign up for something that's repeated over time instead of a one-off thing, instead of a networking event, instead of a single lecture. Because when you do, you're going to capitalize on a phenomenon called the mere exposure effect, which is our unconscious tendency to like people simply when they become familiar to us. The research finds that simply by being exposed to people's faces, we report liking them more. They don't even have to talk to us. And so what that means is that when you're making friends, show up for two to three months in that community before you decide whether it's for you, because you should expect that the first time you're going to be wary and people are going to be wary of you. It's going to be awkward. This is part of the process. Our human brains need something to be familiar to tell us that this is safe. This person, we've seen them over time. We've been exposed to them. They haven't harmed us. They're safe. So expect it to take a little bit of time. Then once you're in this group, you're assuming people like you. And that means that you're initiating conversations with people in the group. You're not just being passive, right? I tell people to make friends. You have to overcome two types of avoidance. One, overt avoidance, which is I just stay home and I don't show up because I'm anxious about meeting people. But two is covert avoidance, which is I show up physically, but I'm checked out mentally. I'm on my phone. I'm texting my friends. I'm talking to the one person I already know. I'm not introducing myself to anyone. I'm not engaging with anyone. And so making sure you overcome that covert avoidance by actually saying, hey, you know, my name's Marissa. Like, tell me about this group. How long have you been here? You know, what neighborhood do you live in? What got you interested? You know, really engaging in people in that way, because What does it take to be likable? Fundamentally, the research tells us this is called the theory of inferred attraction. People like people that they think like them. (laughs) And the problem is when we're very insecure, all we're thinking about is how people are treating us. We're not actually thinking about, am I making them feel welcome? Am I making them feel loved? Because the people that are best at belonging are the people that make other people feel like they belong. So overcome that covert avoidance. And then maybe after a couple of times showing up in the group, Invite someone that you like best out of all the people that you've engaged in in conversation to hang out outside the group, maybe to meet up before for coffee, after for tea, in your home, whatever it is. And then you continue to have that group as a scaffold to maintain the friendship in those fragile early stages. Ooh, I like how you did give some opening lines for people. I feel like people can kind of panic and they don't know how to initiate conversation with someone else. Sometimes we just fall back on, what do you do for a living? Do you have some other examples of really good things to say when you're first engaging with people? Absolutely. So the first thing that I want to say is take the pressure off yourself because the thing that matters the most is that you are engaging, not what you say. You don't have to come up with something clever Mm. or genius or funny or charismatic because you're already flattering people by showing them that interest and attention. And so what you say matters a lot less. You know, that's why I usually go with, Hey, you know, my name's Marissa. How are you doing? Something very simple like that. But another, I think helpful tip I've heard 
this is from a CDO, I think his name is, is David Hoffeld. He recommends something called the insight in the question method, which basically means you're commenting on something about your shared experience and then asking a follow-up question, right? So maybe you're at the running group together and you're like, oh, wow, it's such a nice day to run today. How are you enjoying it today? Or you're commenting, this is my first time at this running group. How many times have you been before? So you're just sharing a commentary about your shared circumstances and following up with a question that invites the other person to share too. So you don't all of a sudden have to become a stand-up comic or say something super insightful. You just have to try to connect with the person and your shared experience. You know, Abby and Amy, this is another misconception we have about friendship. We think being good at friendship is about being so smart, charismatic, funny, entertaining. These are actually the qualities that people value the least (laughs) in a friend. The one that they report valuing the most, this is for both men and women, is something called ego support, which basically means people make them feel valued and people that make them feel like they matter. So being loving, being kind, showing interest in people, this is basic stuff, but I think we really underestimate its value when it comes to connection. And we put so much pressure on ourselves to have to be someone else when just exactly who you are, letting yourself be that loving person that's inside of you. That's just eclipsed by all your fears of rejection and anxieties that are normal and natural in two years of a pandemic, just letting that come out and and showing love for people and interest in people is the path towards friendship. We're trying to uncomplicate this for people, but we also want to meet people where they are because we know that our listeners can feel really nervous about that. That's okay. Drew always teases me because when we meet a listener in person, I can be kind of awkward because it feels overwhelming sometimes. So we're all working on something. So if this is an area where you're working on it, we are proud of you and we know that can be hard. Yeah, I just wanted to add, you know, there's this theory in in psychology that really helps me. And it's kind of related to something I've talked about before. And it's this idea, big jargony term called psychic multiplicity, which is that we all have multiple selves. And what that means to me is that it's okay for me to have an anxious, fearful self, right? That's normal and that's natural. I think the problem happens when we think we have to suppress it and push it away and be like, I'm not anxious, I'm fine you can just build a second self within you, right? Like think of yourselves as multiple selves. And even as that anxious side exists, another side can exist that is a little bit more comfortable, that is maybe coming from a place of more love and openness. And those two things can coexist at the same time. And you can just lean into that side of yourself that's feeling a little bit more open. Mm. Okay. I wanted to end this conversation by talking about something that I have talked about in the past, but when I did become a mom, I almost put friendships on the shelf. I really was making this choice of like, I have such limited time now. I have work. I have my family. I have my romantic partnership. You know, I want to work out and take care of myself. These are my priorities right now. And friendship just doesn't fit in the way that it used to fit. So I definitely throttled back, sometimes not even showing up in that part of my life. And what I learned when I re-entered my friendships, and thankfully they were longstanding friendships and everyone was so kind, is that I really did miss that part of my life. And I would go to dinner with a girlfriend and I would think, why did I miss out on doing this for a period of time? So I would love it if you spoke on how important friendship is to our lives 
because I know that there's probably other women out there listening that might be opting out just like I was. Absolutely. So I think we need to start seeing friendship as part of what being a good romantic partner looks like, as part of what being a good mom looks like. Because we know from the research that our romantic relationships are healthier when we have friends. You know, this study found that people release more cortisol, which is a stress hormone after fights with their romantic partner when they have friends, when they have social support outside that community. We know from the research that people are more likely to survive turbulence within their romantic partnerships when they have friends outside of that romantic partnership. We know from the research that one of the biggest predictors of whether your kids make friends is if they see you make friends, right? And that fundamentally, one of the greatest gifts you can give to your kid is your own mental health and well-being. You know, I know we have all these priorities and I think that's okay to like want to focus on your family and want to focus on your romantic partner, but just, I want to make people aware that part of that focus, if that's what your focus is, part of you being the best wife, part of you being the best mother is also being a good friend because our friendships, our social support networks are a resource that helps us show up so much better in all of the other relationships we're looking to succeed at in our lives. And we can start to think of it as a resource. You will probably start to tap into it as a resource a lot more. So Dr. Marissa, you have been amazing as always. Thank you so much for having this conversation with Amy and I and with all of our listeners. Please let everyone know where they can find more of you. Absolutely. So if you want a deeper dive than I've done today, my book, Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends is currently available, just debuted. You can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Marissa G. Franco, D-R-M-A-R-I-S-A-G-F-R-A-N-C-O. That's also my website, drmarissagfranco.com, where I have a survey where you can assess your strengths and weaknesses as a friend. And I'm available to speak on all things friendship, connection, belonging as well. So if you guys enjoyed this episode, like Dr. Marissa said, her book is now available and I would highly recommend that you go over and get yourself a copy. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.